In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. in discussion. Originally from San Diego, California, my guest today grew up as the space age launched and colourful 1960s music, hippies and counterculture rocked. The son of a pragmatic attorney father and English teacher mother, Jeff Puckett showed signs of dimensional creativity at the age of three, later developing entrepreneurial entertainment, aspirations against his father's wishes. Largely self-taught, He admits his passion emanated from somewhere beyond, equating it to where a composer finds music. He was recently quoted, My life path has generally been an adventure of discovery. In 1968, he discovered Disneyland, unquestionably deciding he would someday become an Imagineer, a uniquely skilled creative technical designer able to conjure and construct physical story experiences. Twenty years to the month his childhood dream became reality. Believing now that he saw himself there while playing, experimenting and building miniature Disney attractions through adolescence and early adulthood as if they were real. Forging out on his own, he founded Effect Design in 1998, a Bay Area design firm specializing in experimental storytelling. Across the past decade, He's conceived and produced experiences for Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen's Seattle Science Fiction Museum, Washington, D.C.'s Smithsonian Institution, Philadelphia's Franklin Institute, along with Walt Disney's daughter Diane Disney Miller, and the recently opened Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. Jeff Puckett. Jeff Puckett, welcome back to In Discussion for this our second part in the series together. Thank you, David. It's great to be back. What a wonderful first program that we shared together yesterday in which we concluded, Jeff, with the Times Square 2000 Millennium Celebration Project that clearly presented a gateway for you, a new chapter, as it were, having just made that golden decision to go it alone with your own business. What feelings did you have that you took away in the immediate months that followed? Did it provide you with an emphasis to look at different types of programs, different paradigms? About six, eight months after that, I actually got together with a couple of people that I had uh, collaborated with on the uh, Times Square project and we started bantering around ideas of, of what next and uh, out of that came the idea of creating some sort of performance-based piece that would encompass the idea of rhythm and uh, spirituality and connecting uh, connecting people through the common idea of wanting to pursue passion uh, because that really was what I sensed going into the new millennium was that everyone was looking forward to something new and fresh and and very different than what they'd been through in the past century. And it was just sort of this euphoria. And I thought, wow, it would be great to, uh, to, to take that to the next level. So that project has been all over the place. Um, and it's, it's now with 3D stereoscopic technology coming into the limelight and going digital rather than film-based. Now we're talking about 
putting together something that actually incorporates 3D stereoscopic media with live performance. Uh, and we've done some initial research and development, proven that the technique works. And so we're 10 years later, we're reinventing what we started off right after the millennium celebration. I would like to talk to that in the latter part of the program, if I may, especially referencing the shamanic traditions that you began to develop in this spiritual realm. Before that, I'd like to return to, I believe, your most favoured project, the spaceship Earth, that you were involved in around 1994. This amazing design and construction inspired by Buckminster Fuller. Was this in some form part of that journey that resulted in your position today with the incorporation of mythical and ancient legends and that shamanic teaching? Well, I think to some extent, yes. The one thing that intrigued me the most about about um, participating in that project was the fact that we were, that there was a metaphor that hung hung with me the entire time. And this was a project that went on for about two and a half years while I was with Disney Imagineering. Um, the, the show building is a sphere. There aren't too many spherical buildings on the planet. So to going into that project, I thought to myself, wow, here we are with something that is so completely unconventional that what goes inside of this and the story that's told has also got to be very unconventional. So the show that existed there prior that opened in 1982 started off literally taking visitors back in time to the beginning of, of uh, human existence. And some of the first scenes are literally um, our ancestors in, in very primitive scenarios starting to figure out how to communicate with each other. And they kind of, in the early story, jumped right into writing things on tablets and writing things on walls. And I started thinking, again, tying into this other project I just spoke of, um, the very, very first communications were actually rhythmic. And when you start thinking about the vibrations from rhythm, you start thinking about a sort of a universal language, I think that possibly this idea that I've been playing with now for 10 years uh, began at that moment because we had the opportunity to have the storyline be communication, starting with the very first communication and then ending into the future of what communication meant to everyone alive today and what it might mean to our, to our generations to come. So all this is tied in, the metaphor of designing into a spherical space um, and actually penetrating that space, space with some of our optical illusions to actually go beyond the walls of the sphere using some optical techniques was just an incredible, incredible uh, time for me in my career. And so uh, that sticks out as being a real high point. Demographically, who do you believe received most benefit in terms of age groups? And I'm sure this is supplied through the collection of data from those managing these programs. But who do you think or what did you come away with as imagining who was supplied with the greatest information and who were most receptive? Well, I would say the the goal is always to encompass all age groups. I think that in the beginning of the attraction, it's probably connecting more to an older uh, mindset, say 40 and upward. And yet by the time you're finished coming out of this, it was much more appealing to a younger generation since it addressed modern technology and where we felt that technology was going. The, the, the show has since been replaced with yet another version, which is an interesting thing about, about Disney attractions is that they, as Walt wished for in the beginning, said that, that Disneyland or Disney theme parks will always change based on the uh, continuing imagination in the world. So it's a plus and a minus that the show I'm speaking of doesn't exist anymore. However, I think that it did address... I, it addressed different generations as you went through. So with people going through the attraction today, I think it's geared even more toward a younger generation, meaning 
teenagers through, say, mid-20s. The inner workings of your mind, however, if you've taken the time to compare a project some 16 years ago, now dropped into the present technologies, would you be moving further than a 3D environment in light of the fact that we have many today talking of a different world that perhaps dimensionally will be very different. Are there other ideas you've adopted in further creating these immersive environments so spectators really do understand their universe beyond just their present reality? Certainly, I, I think about that. I also have to, as, as a business owner... I have to also speak the language of the times. Um, often I find it's difficult to communicate even some of the things that are doable today. So I, I generally, uh, I'll answer your question in a moment. I generally don't go there when I'm talking to a group about creating something in the here and now. I certainly believe in something other than sight and sound and tactile and olfactory and all these, all these, the, the, the senses that we normally interact with in the physical world, I do believe, as the Moody Blues once said in their lyrics, uh, thinking is the best way to travel. And uh, I can't begin to explain where we could go as a civilization if we pulled out of this physicality paradigm and dropped more into the subconscious spiritual uh, realms that we know exist in whichever way we label them, whether it be through religious terminology or, um, or esoterica or some other, some other words and phrases. We all know that we came from some place and we're all going to some place and that this, this lifetime that we're in now is, is fascinating to me as we walk through this in our spacesuits called our bodies but that our bodies are designed to carry our spirits and our souls across this physical plane. And I would hope that at some point along that journey, we're able to close our eyes, close our ears, and open ourselves to, to other places, other spaces that are probably more real, in fact, than the physicalities that we take for granted as being our normal life. For me, that's an important statement ahead of interviewing Dr. Jude Caravan from England, who is very clear on the point that we are only aware of some 4% of the universe that we actually occupy, and that perhaps the reality that we believe we are in is actually not reality. And of course, the wonderful Professor Bill Tiller, who defines our bodysuit as holding our soul and minds and hearts. And in that much untapped power that we possess and perhaps right now are not aware of. But returning, however, to the shamanic stories and Mayan calendar and those ancient people who built the pyramids so many thousands of years ago, what do you believe are the values that you incorporate now into your work as ideas and stimulus for those who will pass by your creations? The best way to put that is, is an awakening of, of uh, consideration for other possibilities. Um, without getting too, too far off the, uh, the tangent here, I want to just say that I don't consider myself to be the most spiritual person on the planet. I, I learn as I go. I, I like to use the phrase, looking in the portals, the, the portholes of life as I go down the path. I'm fascinated with all the different ways that literary, literary people have uh, put into words their descriptions of what they think happened uh, many, many thousands of years ago with these civilizations just appearing out of nowhere and then disappearing into nowhere. I think that the technologies that were used and applied in those times are probably the most fascinating to me. I don't tend to get so interested in the day-to-day -day life, but more what the motivations were to those people. Um, and, and also to try and imagine what it must have been like 
to live in that mindset uh, in that we don't we, we can't as a modern society today really understand what it was like to live in those civilizations we can assume and we can guess and we can imagine and we can pontificate and all the academics will step in and say this is how it was however we're, we're using our filter for today's lifestyle uh, and expectations of who we are to then reflect what we think it was like back then so the thing that I find the most fascinating is how to tap into what might have been and apply that to some small degree to change our perspectives on who we are today. And so through these experiences that I create, um, I'm constantly looking for new ways to, to shed light on seeing things in a whole different way so that you can come out of that experience maybe being a little bit more of a, of a rebel in your own life so that you can challenge others to think, think in, a, in a whole new way as well. Do you see yourself as much an architect as well as a storyteller in creating a narrative, you know, providing a different world that people enter, if only transitionally, that they can elect to take with them in their lives or not? Do you see yourself as an architect in the way that you create these immersive environments? It, it generally involves architecture, although the primary element is light. Uh, and I've, I've been uh, called a view-zician, V-I-E-W-zician, in that it's, it goes beyond light and goes beyond projection. Um, I'm very visually oriented, and so everything that I everything that I consider in the beginning starts with a sketch on a piece of paper and then I start adding the other elements to it. Architecture tends to be the canvas that, that I play onto and yet I can't say that I'm an architect. In fact, when I was, when I was in uh, college the second time, I was, being, I was being trained to be sort of an architectural designer and I didn't really like the constraints that it put on me because I didn't want to build physical set things. I, I loved the idea of light projection, imagery, uh, uh, things that could be morphed onto solid surfaces and, and preferably even have those surfaces move and change themselves. So one of the frustrations of working in the physical space is that there are these things that you have to deal with called physics. And you, you, can't, you can't necessarily create skyhooks to make things float in midair. And wrapping back around to the whole 3D stereoscopic technique that we're playing with now, that's the next best step, is that you can create architecture that looks solid, and yet it's not there at all because it's all pixel-based. I pose that question because of your Smithsonian Ocean Hall project within the Museum of Natural History. There is a space that you talk to of floating displays that is geared and governed by the way that it's lit. And around that, you do have this foundation, this architectural platform, which in itself governs how you design this creation all within these confines. Yeah, there's. Uh, we did uh, a series of conceptual designs uh, for the Smithsonian Ocean Hall, uh, and it, uh, what, what the goal was, was to create the experience of being in the ocean. Uh, what I had proposed was uh, creating a space that was large and the creatures were full-sized, rather than seeing images and videos of, of whales that were only 12 inches long. So the idea there was to create something that you could relate to and be in awe of it just because of the sheer breadth and size of the display. That was something I felt very passionate about about doing. And uh, as as designs happen and different people have different opinions, it's uh, it got changed a little bit as to what's actually there. Um, but at the same time, it definitely caused me to realize the power of sort of a living mural. And so we're, uh, we're in the process right now of actually working on a project here in San Francisco where it looks like we're going to be able to realize that in its uh, actual form as I had first envisioned. And of course, when you undertake these projects, you have to be centered with those 
working on the programs with you, in understanding their gifts and that you are bringing in much of your own life and quite possibly an influence or reflection of your own childhood and those memories. I'm interested in one of your quotations that you authored, Act on Inspiration, Not Intimidation. Acting on inspiration is a clear statement and not intimidation. Is that a practical statement you use in creating community uh, during these projects and assuring in assuring that indeed you're not intimidated by others in meeting the vision that you held or hold uh, from the beginning? The, the, the word intimidation is meant to suggest don't follow others if you truly are inspired. Uh, there are obviously times where you're working with a group or a committee or a or, or someone who is acting as a sponsor to bring something to life, that you do have to do the dance. Um, what I do is commercial art. So uh, I, I've not often had the luxury of saying, this is, this is my complete vision, this is exactly how I want it to be, and nobody can tell me one way or the other. Uh, there's always a little bit of give and take, and yet... Part of what I do also is, uh, as a business person, I have to become a salesman. And I need to put on that hat at times to show what it is I'm putting on the table as a benefit to all, all in the room. And that it's not just something that I, as, a, as an artist, must have just because. I literally have to create justification. I have to meet budget expectations and time frame, time frame constraints and all that. Uh, so it's my world is is much more than just the creation of the experience. Uh, and at the same time, it's essential to be able to uh, create understanding. There's there's a bit of hand holding that goes on in the projects that I get involved with, only because I'm coming in at an oblique angle often to a group that just has they're fascinated with what they've heard that I've created, but they don't really understand how it comes to be. So there's there's education from the very beginning in order to relieve some of the potential intimidation of of a group saying we saw this, it must be like this. That's all we know. Amongst your projects and of course we could return back to the old notions of ego that I'm sure that we all suffer from now and again but as artists tend to hold on to it for dear life in many cases there is also a great gift in being able to collaborate after these projects over the last 15 years Jeff are there any way you never departed from the original vision you know your intuition right from the beginning that you remember never allowed you to leave that goal that you started with the the yeah the thing that uh comes to mind as you mentioned that goes back to this times square millennium celebration where i was very very fortunate to have been asked to write a treatment for what these 24 hours would be. When I came into that project, um, there were two things that were established. One, that it was going to be 24 hours of millennium celebrations around the world that were being brought into Times Square through, through video means, but also that this needed to be something that, that involved the, uh, the world uh, in whatever way, shape, or form I could conjure. So the solution was through pageantry, through th theatrical pageantry, and through having um, music and, and color and symbolism, but no language. There was not a single word spoken for 24 hours. And that, that was able to make it through two years' worth of design. And what we came out with on the other end was highly successful in that it, it involved people's imaginations as to where they were going in the world each hour to to celebrate these these new new beginnings for these cultures around the world, uh, and so it was my responsibility to, to paint the picture of what these places were 
uh, and to celebrate them in Times Square as we actually had live feeds coming in from around the world. So that probably stayed the purest for the longest of any project I've been involved with. You're clearly armed with a great responsibility with building these immersive environments and potentially, I think, constructing a space where many people will travel through, including young children, given a firm memory that they will take through their entire life, potentially. Do you ever have any anxiety about that responsibility and possibly attempt to find out through marketing data or interaction, even with those that are, uh, attend these spaces in supporting and approaching future projects? I don't really pay much attention to the logical side of what what may be uh, produced down the line to start off with. Um, I one of one of the challenges I've had is how do you how do you put numbers to to justify a budget to create something? How do you how do you know that there's going to be a return on investment for X number of dollars spent across a certain period of time? Um, because no one's come up really with with a template to evaluate the value of experience. Uh, and I would welcome a listener to to send me some uh, parameter that they have heard of that you could actually uh, notate in dollar form experience and value and um, the raising of the IQ or or the ability to think more clearly as a result of an experience. Um, so I don't really consider that going in. And frankly, I think I think it's easier to create something more uniquely by not thinking of those sorts of parameters at the very beginning. Now, now obviously, at times down the line, you do have to work with sponsors uh, who who want to have some sort of connection in with their service or product. Um, but generally, that's a pretty background item that I don't really concern myself with. Another interesting quotation, you authored, so many live in cages while holding the key. Was that a quotation you developed after a particular experience, having perhaps analyzed and assessed how people reacted in your environment that you had built? Well, the, um, the concept of, of living in a cage holding the key applies to me as well. It's, uh, we're, all, we're all somewhat constrained by our beliefs, our expectations of ourselves, how we feel we fit into our surroundings and our, our um, creations as a result of our actions. Uh, so I, I heard that quotation from someone else. I don't remember who actually created that. And, and it stuck with me for years and years since I feel that probably one of our biggest goals in life is to, uh, is to step out of that cage as often as possible so that we have the ability to um, see things in a whole different way, if, if nothing more than to recognize the fact that we've been living in a cage. Uh, and may, we may step back into the cage because it's comfortable, and yet the longer we can be outside of that, the happier we're going to be after we get through the pain of, of discovery. Uh, Carlos Castaneda famously said that if you allow me to show you the room you live in, I'll show you 999 other rooms in the house. And then it, when we get past that, I will take you outside the house and show you something way beyond that. Uh, again, that was a metaphor that stuck with me uh, from the first time I heard that of, of wow, there's more than, more than just this room I live in? That's fascinating. And again, one of your favorite quotations, I believe, life is often a painful journey until one embraces change. And I guess that in our world today in society, one of the greatest challenges is the do-consume mentality that people are caught up in in this materialistic world of ours. And in your notes, you mention and question people's physical existence. 
and you ask the question, why do humans augment their existence with so much stuff? In that immersive environment, how do you design it so that it takes people successfully away from this world that we live in today? Is there a secret in minimalizing that impact that we have in this environment in the way that you build it? How do you consider that process in your mind? The the primary focus I have in, in creating these spaces and places, environments, uh, other, other worlds is to create the essence so that, so that you don't have the clutter and the static that so many are used to in their lives. There's this increasing amount of, of stuff, whether it be media stuff or electronic gadget stuff or relationship stuff. There's so many things that distract us from who we truly are that my, my goal is always to find the essence, find the, the pure story message uh, so that you can focus in on what the story is and not be distracted. I think that's one of my biggest frustrations with television is that when you're watching television, you're not really watching it. You are including television as part of the space that you're watching the television in uh, and you have distractions. You have uh, the room itself, you have other noises and sounds, you have the daylight or you have the lamp. So to be able to immersively involve a participant in a space that literally becomes their reality, uh, by default it's my responsibility as the designer of that to be as pure as I can to tell that story as clearly as possible so it almost becomes meditative uh, in its in its own uh, existence and that you don't have to worry about all the extraneous things all you have to do is release yourself into that space and absorb what what you do and come out of it and recall it talk about it to someone else uh, re-experience the experience in your own personal way when you look at filmmaking, Jeff, returning to the 40s and 50s, reviewing, you know, wonderful directors like Hitchcock, who worked extremely hard to not only create a film moving in one direction towards the audience, but also cleverly finding a way to pull the audience into the film itself. It has merit, and you the same way are allowing human beings into this immersive environment to walk within whatever dream state you're offering them where they can freefall into that space not only with their consciousness memories and perhaps pain or joy but it is far different from watching a film or television that has become a form of manipulation so was it from the early days that you realized that you had to exclude all those oppressive effects that one would experience by entering a, a theater or sitting in front of a television i've always admired large screen cinema uh, and certainly the, the larger the screen the the more immersive that experience becomes and and frankly uh uh, large large screen cinema is the closest to the sorts of of uh, creations that I produce, and oftentimes large large screen media is part of the experience that I produce. Um, so hats off to those who have created these these very high resolution motion pictures. Um, frankly, uh, to get into the technology for a moment, the the resolution that was presented on movie screens back in the in the 60s and 70s Cinerama uh, there are dozens of large formats that that people watched and didn't even realize what they were those those were sold uh, into the movie industry because of that immersive quality you were able to uh, encompass the peripheral vision of the viewer far better than the tiny little postage stamp screens prior to those so the next step beyond that is uh, Omnimax, which is a hemispherical display system where you truly, this is, this is the, as though you're actually going into that world because you're sitting at the uh, center point of a, of a dome screen. 
these sorts of technologies I find fascinating that they haven't caught on quicker uh, because they do take you to a completely different space. Television, obviously, at the lower end, only because you do have all this other distraction in the peripheral. But it's that peripheral vision, if you can pull the viewer or the participant into the space and immerse them in, in the best way possible, you're really able to tell a story much more easily than if you're dealing with a smaller screen or a computer monitor or, heaven forbid, a, a, a smartphone, which has a screen that's so small, <laughs> you, you really have no immersive quality whatsoever. The 3D technology in some ways is nothing new, of course, something they were working on or working with in the 1940s and 50s. The technology, however, evident in films like Avatar was an amazing feat but at the end of the day, technology can be incredible, but success, it seems to me, always hinges upon story structure, the ideals, the vision, that noble intent behind it. Is that a significant part of your mission, that prior to physical construction, or composing visually or lyrically, or in terms of lighting, the use of technology that you have to begin with, is it that you have to start the process with the definitive questions? You know, what is this about? What are your objectives? What is it that you need to achieve? The, the story is always, always the most important element. Without a great story, you can throw all the technology you want at it, and it, eventually it will fail. Um, I think I think this is something that, has been at the forefront of my design uh, career for at least 30 years. I think the first couple of years I was fascinated with just the, the ooh-ah toys. And then I started realizing that, ah, a, a, a great story with marginal technology is far better than a mediocre story with the latest cutting-edge technology. Uh, and so whenever I'm involved in the, the pre-production of a project, it's always to find out what the message is, how it's going to be conveyed, and then I go shopping for the best ways to to realize it. And also to have an understanding of, is there something out there that doesn't exist yet that would really make this come to life if it did exist? Uh, and the best thing about, about uh, the Internet these days is within a few minutes, I can go out and find people that are working on these really obscure research projects and give them a ring and say, hey, are you up to working with me to, uh, to make something come to life in a, in a theatrical format? And they always will say, that sounds great. Get me out of the engineering lab. I want to see this thing live in the real world. So uh, that's, that's one of the most fun portions of a project. I took that road of discussion given how in my work in radio and film where the structure of always begins with a disturbance moving through the effort to overcome with a resounding solution. The question was asked really on behalf of our audience who may be filmmakers or writers, because that common impact needed by them is similar to yours. Nevertheless, that story structure, construction, guiding, lighting is still different to film or even a theatrical platform. It's a progression beyond both of those mediums where that story structure has many layers through which people journey from one environment to another, one topic to another topic or a subtopic. And that must offer challenges to ensure that people do not lose their way and even further become saturated in their thinking process. Certainly that's, that's one of the challenges is, um, is as technologies uh, get brought into the limelight, we're, we're now finally starting to exit the touchscreen technology craze where everything was touchscreen based. And now we're starting to get into gesture recognition uh, a la minority report where uh, you can literally put your arms physically in 3D space and move them around and the uh, systems will detect and understand where your hands are 
and the size of your hands. If you, if you make a fist versus you stretch your fingers out, it knows what to do as far as image size, uh, bringing something into the foreground, the background. And so the, what, this, what this is doing is it's creating reality out of initial technological fantasy. And I very much believe that science fiction needs to be put on a higher pedestal since science fiction writers generally create the novels that get turned into, some of them get turned into motion pictures, and then we all get used to that. We all carry around uh, devices in our pockets called cell phones that had their start on Star Trek. And everybody has a personal communicator, and the only difference is we're not talking to spaceships, but we might as well be. Uh, so, so the ability for, for literature and motion pictures to affect scientific breakthroughs, I think, is something fascinating to me, is that the, the engineering community really wants to be part of the, the normal world as well. And they, don't, they love creating these things, but they love to see these things come out into the real world. And I think the happiest people I've worked with have been engineers who get brought out into the sunlight with, with their creations being applied for, for solutions that they never dream, dreamed of. And so that's, I sometimes feel like I'm a honeybee opening the flower when I contact these people. I strongly believe moving forward that we will be utilizing the gifts of engineers far more than we will scientists. As we progress so we can govern the way technology is used and avoid overuse or use for the wrong purposes. And as we move forward and your work expands and advances, do you see the importance for all of us to return back to nature, or if not sounding decadent in any way, move into nature, you know, back to the earth, with less priority on material objects, on anything outside of a special world that perhaps we talked to in the first program, to a point where we can serve and appreciate the world, not destroy it, as we clearly have been for centuries. Is that part of your mindset, Jeff, that yes, technology can be utilized to its best purpose, but also that in the way we talk about vibrations and the polarities, the coming together, growing together, are these all elements that you will take with you into future projects now? The, the, main, the main point that I feel the most uh, dedicated to at this stage in my career is to encourage people to think. And I, I did mention uh, the importance of critical thinking uh, in the first program, and I think that that ultimately must be the most important uh, result of whatever it is that I put out into the world. Um, being sensible about consumption, being aware of our impact as individuals uh, and as groups is very, very important. We, as, as the population expands on the planet, we each have more and more responsibility to teach one another that having a bunch of stuff or, or being ignorant or not respectful to other human beings is, is, is going to erode our own personal life as well as everyone else. And so the green movement, the, the moving away from oil is all kind of a subset to being able to critically think and being intelligent about our, our choices. Uh, so whenever I'm creating a story, I'm always hoping that in the end I've gotten someone to, to see the results of their actions in a different way. Presenting another of your quotations, the future is always bright depending upon the perspective from which you view it. I believe it has two meanings, an obvious message for all of us. But when you use that word perspective, from which you view it, perhaps, I rather think that you wrote that having gone through some type of experience during one of your projects. Is that how this statement was derived, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, that came out of sort of a dark moment <clears throat> that I was um, 
I was realizing that the day is just the day. The day is not good or bad. It's just the day, and it's our perspective or our viewpoint as to what we want that to be. Uh, so when when I wrote that quotation, I realized that, and I get this from hiking. I, I hike pretty much every day, and I do that as a, as a rebuilding element for my own sanity to get out into nature and to get away from technology and to get away from this workaday world that if you start off in the valley and it's it's dark and it's late afternoon and you hike up to the top of the hill all of a sudden the sun reappears so the sun obviously can represent the future the sun can represent life the sun can represent our connection with being alive uh, so so my point in writing that was to to say it's up to us individually to select the way we want to proceed forward in our day and in our lives to uh, to not necessarily be a Pollyanna, but to not think that we are in the midst of something that is beyond our control, that we do have the ability to constantly change our lives as a result of our perspective and our belief set. And you eloquently support that with the statement or quotation, every day is a fresh canvas, each morning we are handed a new brush. Looking back over your career and now looking forward to the many projects I'm sure that you'll be involved in, and complemented with incredible technology and amazing people, who no doubt are thinking very differently in how we use our gift that we are so blessed with, how we approach other people that we live with and that we work with. Do you look back to your childhood and in retrospect wonder how you arrived here and in quieter moments think to yourself that this life is everything that you dreamt of as a child and more? Yes and no. I uh, <laughs> I do fantasize about the uh, the relaxed atmosphere that I had as a child, being able to create and build and learn through my experimentations. Uh, my my the, the biggest the biggest uh, excitement I ever could have at Christmas time was to get cardboard, scotch tape, and a pair of scissors and and start creating something. So those days are very special and precious to me. And yet at the same time, getting older, I realize that I now have wisdom and experience that enables me to participate in a much larger world than I ever, ever conceived back then. Being able to, I'm, I'm fearless now when I pick up the phone and I call somebody that might be able to open up a new door. Uh, that's not something I've always been able to do. And yet I realize that we all have the same interests, we just realize them in different ways. We all have a sense of adventure that we'd like to pursue. We all have this ability to create things that we never knew we could create if we're around the right people. So so I, I don't dwell on my childhood. I use it as sort of a jumping off point. And I realize that what I've got available now is much, much more than I ever envisioned. And I, I really am thankful for the fact that, uh, that I've been able to grow over the years and recognize these new horizons. And what do you have planned for the future now, Jeff? Currently, I've got a couple of things we're working on. Um, one of them, as I'd mentioned earlier, is, is uh, taking uh, media that is uh, able to be viewed stereoscopically and create theatrical presentations, stage sets, elements that are animated and floating in midair and combine those with live performers, uh, whether it's somebody presenting a product, a service, uh, a Broadway show. No longer are physical sets needed. No longer are we constrained to having rigging overhead to hang things off cables this is this has been something I've been fascinated with for decades, uh, and now with technology taking us into the digital age of of, uh, of 3D projection, we're able to actually do things that I had 
thought of and hoped could be done in my lifetime, and, and now we're dabbling with that. The other project that is coming up to speed uh, here in the Bay Area is a uh, space that is going to enable uh, people who are interested in, in collaborating with musicians to do so in a space that either enables them to play their music or to participate in situations, if they're not musical themselves, where they can wrap themselves in the whole lore of music. But we're going to be creating environments and spaces that literally take you into the world of music. And it becomes a uh, sort of a, a drop into a world that that you've never been in before. And again, using sound and sights and projection and incorporating these elements together in ways that... Uh, that haven't been done in the past, and so this is uh, this is something we're working on presently. We're all here to guide our children, guiding them, leading them, teaching them in creating an evolving and certainly very changing world. What would be your message in encouraging them not only to explore nature, but certainly places like Disney? the immersive environments that you create in order to open up their own consciousness and expand their minds for their lives ahead? Well, the one word to remember always is belief. If you believe in something, it will come true. And I say that both from the, the bright side of the word and also the dark side. To, to believe in yourself to believe in your potential, to believe in the ability to find people in the world to bring you to the place that you see yourself being in. Beliefs are where it starts. And to understand that everything in your world at this very moment was created because of actions based on your beliefs. So that key to the cage is belief. Jeff Puckett, with all that said... Thank you so very much for sharing your life and career on In Discussion. I do wish you well in the future and hope that we talk again very soon. Thank you so much, David. This has been an amazing opportunity to uh, speak with you. And to our listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning. Good afternoon and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Dot com.